It's been a 007 back. It's a double movie review weekend because obviously it is Barbie Heimer. Although actually having watched both Barbie and Oppenheimer, I think Barbie is incredibly flattered to be put into that portmanteau. Barbie is a perfectly reasonable, entertaining and quite fun film. Oppenheimer is something else. It is a category difference in terms of quality and content of filmmaking. It's my absolute pleasure to say that because historically I found Christopher Nolan's films to be deeply frustrating. I regard him as our most accomplished technical filmmaker since Stanley Kubrick, and yet I've really struggled to get emotionally involved in his films. I admire them, I'm intellectually provoked by them, but I have found them historically to be arid, sterile things that simply fail to move me or tell me really damningly anything insightful about the human condition. With Oppenheimer, everything has changed. For the first time for me, because I'm aware this is very much not the case for people who love Interstellar and other of his films, but for me, this is the first time that Nolan has trained his IMAX camera onto a deeply personal, ethical, political, sexual story of a great but troubled man. He has given me a film that feels at times more like an Oliver Stone political conspiracy film that takes us under the, the sordid skin of American history. But at the same time, he is still giving us what he always did, which is images and sound design of surpassing beauty and power. And best of all, he forces us to go to an IMAX screen to watch this on actual film. So you're just seeing images of a quality and a artistry that you rarely see in the cinema. So what's it all about in case you've missed the barrage of media? Nolan's film Oppenheimer is an interrogation of the life of J. Robert Oppenheimer, the genius physicist who ran the US government's Manhattan Project and delivered them the atomic bomb that was controversially used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. One might think this would earn Oppenheimer a nation's grateful respect, but in the Cold War anti-Soviet hysteria of the McCarthy witch hunts, Oppenheimer was refused his security clearance on the basis of his 1930s sympathy with left-wing causes, and he was effectively publicly silenced and driven out of the public debate on how to use atomic power. I would highly recommend, if you want to know more about him, that you read the book American Prometheus, on which this film was based. That would argue, as does this film, that Oppenheimer was not a communist, but he was a fellow traveller and he did donate to a lot of worthy causes in the 1930s that he may or may not have realised were fronted by communist organisations. After all, Robert Oppenheimer was a second generation Jew and he was very aware very early on through his physics colleagues back in Germany of the oppression and persecution that Jews in Europe were facing. He paid for many of them to immigrate into or emigrate to the United States and that made him very sensitive to the plight of refugees in the Spanish Civil War and the side of right in that war was the communist side. So you can see why he was drawn into sympathy with left-wing socialist causes. But was he a traitor? No. He may have been a fellow traveller, but he was not a traitor. He loved his country. He was hugely homesick when he left it for Europe as a young student. He hated Hitler. He feared what would happen if the Nazis got the atomic bomb. And although Los Alamos was under suspicion of leaking secrets to the Soviets, what we found out after the war is that it was Klaus Fuchs, a German emigre via Britain who came to Los Alamos who was actually leaking secrets to the Soviets. Oppenheimer, even after everything his country did to him, loved it to the end. He was a real patriot. So Oppenheimer was not a formal communist by any means, and he was certainly not a traitor. 
But he was guilty of two things. He was guilty of naivete and high-handedness. He was naive about how far his celebrity would protect him from the political machine. He was naive about how far a prurient establishment would excuse his incessant womanizing, not least with the actual communist Gene Tatlock. And he was really naive about how far he could cover up for his communist friend Harkin Chevalier without being seen as complicit or sympathetic to the communist cause. And Oppenheimer was also high-handed. Perhaps this should be no surprise for the wealthy son of a first-generation Jewish immigrant who grew up in an apartment filled with expensive art and who had the resources to travel throughout Europe to learn from the champions of the new physics. For a man who could be devastatingly charming at a dinner party, he was very careless of appearing rude to powerful politicians. He had no time for the political game, and the political game eventually had no time for him. I think that all of this is perfectly captured in this film, in the character of Oppenheimer as played by Killian Murphy. But it's also importantly captured and embodied and personified by Oppenheimer's nemesis, Louis Strauss. The fascinating thing here is that Strauss was also a second generation Jewish immigrant. But unlike Oppenheimer, he didn't have the money to study physics at university. He actually became a shoe salesman to raise the tuition fees, but never went. And despite later wild financial success and political power, he never lost his insecurity over this lack of formal education. After World War II, Strauss maintained his interest in science by chairing the Atomic Energy Commission, and so butted heads repeatedly with Oppenheimer. And it's interesting, Oppenheimer's attitude after the war, while he never publicly regretted creating the A-bomb or its use against Japan, he did, by his actions, show that he regretted it. And he used all of his influence to try and steer US policy towards global collaboration, containment, and against developing the H-bomb. By contrast, the pragmatic straws simply wanted the US to be better armed than the Soviets. And this butting of heads between Oppenheimer, the very moral, very ethical physicist, and Strauss, the political animal, is used as the framing device by Christopher Nolan. I think it's masterful because he combines as the framing device two trials in all but name that took place in the 1950s in the very febrile McCarthyite political climate. The latter of these two non-trial trials is the 1958 Senate hearing of Straws, which is shot in black and white. Um, It's very important that Nolan does this because it helps us to keep apart the two narratives, the one that contains straws and the one that's very subjective in colour and from Nolan's perspective um, and from Oppenheimer's perspective. The reason for the 1958 Senate hearing is that straws wanted to gain a cabinet position, which he was then denied. And the reason for this denial is reopening or relitigating the 1954 Atomic Energy Commission interrogation of Oppenheimer, so the other framing device, the other non-trial trial, where Oppenheimer's security clearance was not renewed. And it really was a kangaroo court. It was held in private. There was no right of reply. And when this top secret clearance was denied, Oppenheimer basically was hounded out of public life. He did not have or was seen to have had his wings clipped. He wasn't credible anymore. And really, he never recovered from it. The vast centre of the film within these framing devices of the two non-trial trials, as I keep calling them, is the story of Oppenheimer's life, incredibly subjective, told by him in his own statement to the 1954 Grey Commission. In this part of the film, we are in vivid colour. We're in the experience of Oppenheimer. 
We see him as a young student in Europe, then going to Berkeley, where he becomes a very charismatic professor and really brings quantum physics to the United States. And then we see him as the very practical, driven manager of the Manhattan Project. Most importantly, we see him trying to balance his politics with his top security cleared job, his ethics with the need to win the war against Hitler. This becomes infinitely more muddy when Nazi Germany surrenders, and it becomes clear that the bomb will be used against civilian subjects in Japan. That decision is still debated, and it's unclear how much influence the scientists ever really had on the politicians. But Oppenheimer's self-justification went along the lines that a demonstration of the awesome power of the A-bomb would scare politicians into cooperation with the United Nations for arms control. Evidently, this was not the case. What can we say about this infinitely complex, nuanced and moving drama? Nolan's writing is a masterclass in concision and precision. Every line is considered, every intertwining of timelines adds meaning to the drama. His direction is masterful. Working with cinematographer Hoyt von Hotema, he conjures up the magisterial beauty of New Mexico, the claustrophobia of the commission's interrogation room, the vivid abstraction of quantum physics, and the awesome power of nuclear fire. Working with composer Ludwig Göransson, Nolan creates a sound design and complementary soundscape that is at moments tender, at moments tellingly, brutally silent, at moments so powerful and literally awesome that it shakes your entire body. And working with his actors, well, Nolan is simply a master. Let's start with Killian Murphy's haunting central performances, Oppenheimer. Arrogant, haughty, stubborn, guilt-ridden, at the end, hunted and shrunken. But let's also t- but let's also talk about Robert Downey Jr. as straws, puffed up, prickly, wiser, harder than Oppenheimer. And then we have the balancing presence of Matt Damon as General Groves, kind of being Matt Damon, physically intimidating, no nonsense, practical, but deeply humane. In smaller roles, I loved the interrogatory intensity of Jason Clark's Roger Robb, Dane DeHaan's sinister precision as security officer Nichols, and a truly intimidating cameo by Casey Affleck as his superior Boris Pash, and how wonderful to see Casey Affleck back on screen. For the women, well, for me, this is Nolan's weakness. I feel that both of the female stars are given short shrift. Florence Pugh is all too brief a presence as Oppenheimer's true love, Jean Tatlock. She's reduced to being naked, demanding, capricious. We don't see her brilliance. I think we get to see something of her brave, troubled nature, but it's all too brief. I also think, but need to watch to confirm, that Nolan inserts a slippery, quick shot of a gloved hand intervening in her narrative. Those of you who know the real history of Jean Tatlock will know what I'm talking about there. And then finally, Emily Blunt, who has little to do for a lot of this film. She plays Oppenheimer's wife, Kitty, who was in real life a brilliant botanist who resented giving up her career to be stuck at Los Alamos with the kids. In this film, she's a brittle alcoholic from the start. And I think she exists in the film really to maybe cathartically allow the audience to be angry that Oppenheimer isn't fighting back more and is making himself a martyr. There is a lovely little scene near the end, though, before she testifies to the Grove Commission, where you see something of Oppenheimer's respect for her and the the way in which this very unusual marriage does work. Look, the shortchanging of the female characters for me is a very minor blemish on an outstanding film that pushes Nolan from technical mastery into the realms of what I would call complete filmmaking. For me, finally, he is now to be considered with the true masters of cinema, 
And that means that he's doing something that is intellectually and emotionally provocative and deep, that excites visually and orally, and that can provide us and showcase us outstanding performances. And the only final thing I would say is please, please try and see this if you do at the cinema on IMAX and in film, because it is worthy of that effort. It's such a complete cinematic experience. Anyway, I hope you've also enjoyed Oppenheimer and would love to hear your thoughts. I will be back next week with a review of Mark Cousins' latest film, all about Alfred Hitchcock. So from master to master. Thank you for listening. 